Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. Today is another one of my athlete series, and I was pumped today to speak with Mike Hazel. He will go into his story a lot more during the episode, but to give you guys a little bit of an intro, he was a an Olympic athlete and threw the javelin for the U.S. team in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And then he also spent some time in the Air Force. He's got a wild background and uh, just a really great human being. Um, very driven, very motivational, and through his life experiences, really just has an amazing outlook on life. And I think a lot of you can have a lot of great takeaways from this episode. I know I did. And um, I hope you guys enjoy. So without further ado, give it up for Mike Hazel. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I am pumped today to have Mike Hazel on the podcast. Uh, Mike, do you mind giving your, your like give a little hello and a little intro about yourself? Absolutely. Uh, you got the name, so you heard the, <laughs> the, the highlights there. <laughs> um, a former U.S. Olympian and national champion in the javelin throw was on Team USA for almost a span of 10 years from Roughly 2002 to 2012, retired right before the London Olympics. Uh, had a massive uh, change of gears and uh, enlisted in the military in uh, January of 2013. Spent six years in the combat control teams. Left those guys in January of 2019. And now I am a program manager for a company that is currently supporting uh, Task Force East, uh, East guys out in East Africa running oh, wow. military operations. So. Got I still kind of got one foot in, one foot out, but um, uh, really what I'm, I'm really nerding out on these days, so to speak, is uh, how to undo everything that I did the first 20 years <laughs> uh, got it. Okay. crap out of my body. So I'm super into longevity and you know life hacking and all kinds of stuff to try to unlock hopefully ultimate uh, human potential with uh, with modern science and nutrition and lifestyle and holistic changes to behavior patterns and stuff like that. Oh, wow. so that's kind of what I'm up to now. Love that. Didn't know that part. Are yeah. you, um, are you like, yeah, are you doing this like at, for fun or are you trying to do it as like potential career? Like how are you doing? <clears throat> it would be nice to do it as my career, but as uh, I'm sure we'll talk about here in uh, in a finance discussion, there's gotta be money behind it. So, yeah, sure. um, I'm, that's what I'm passionate about. And so if I can make a career out of something that I'm passionate about right now, then that would be a, a blessing. And I'd, I'd take it, I'd run with it. Um, I would, I would, I'm, I'm just now kind of getting like a social media presence. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I deleted all social media way back in 2010 and oh, wow. I, I just got it in Jan. I got an Instagram account in January of 2019 when I left the military because I had so many people coming up to me saying, dude, you've got a rad story. Like what a, what a complete right. you know, 80 shift from being an Olympian and national champion to enlisting at 34 years old. Like what the hell were you thinking? I'm sure. um, and then obviously going through the pipeline two and a half years of getting your butt kicked every day. Um, so people were asking me like, you know, you got to tell your story. So I reluctantly <clears throat> got a Instagram account to use as a platform to tell the story with the end state or the goal of being uh, to help train and educate people on why I made the life decisions that I did, the massive amount of mistakes that I made along the way in the hopes that 
they can do something similar, yeah. but not make the mistakes. Right. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. That's but cool. Yeah, it would be nice like to make a career out of it. Uh, as of right now, my desk job is uh, takes up most of my bandwidth. But yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll I'm get, sure. What are some What are some like life hacking things you've recently you know learned or really gotten into for longevity? Oh, wow, and- man, dude, I'm telling you, perspective, life perspective. Like uh, the two things that are that are really resonating with me right now are <clears throat> the moment you wake up before you even get out of bed, you need to realize that this, this thing that we call life, this pursuit of happiness, um, this chasing the Jeffersons or whatever they call it, you know, this, everybody's trying to go out and make a dollar. It's a, it's really a gift and yeah. none of us deserve to be here. And when you wake up every morning, giving thanks that you're actually just breathing, it kind of sets the tone of the day. Um, and then the other thing that I'm really working on right now, and it's a, it's a pushback against modern society is, is, uh, comparing yourself to other people, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you're, yeah. you're comparing, you know, the beginning of your marathon to the end of somebody else's marathon. Um, and uh, a saying that I heard that also is pretty powerful is, is comparisons are the thief of appreciations. Oh, I love so, that. So, you know, you may be, you may wake up in your three bedroom, 1500 square foot house and hop onto Instagram and see some dude rolling around in a 4,000 foot square foot mansion or something like, like, Oh damn, I really wish I was that guy. Yeah. And you completely lose perspective of there's a shit ton of people out there that don't have houses at all and have nowhere to live. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of like, those are just two simple things that anybody can do in the morning is just realize, Hey, nobody, nobody deserves to be here. Right. Like, we're all lucky to be here. You should probably be appreciative of what you have and then stop comparing yourself to other people. And then I've got a bunch of other, you know, a lot of other stuff that I've really nerded out on as far as how to, um, basically live a longer, healthier, happier life. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole nother podcast. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. um, I had planned to start my PhD in health and human performance this past August. Uh, My current workload at my day job kind of got in the way and I didn't get my, my ducks in a row in time. So I'm lining that up hopefully for January. uh, Oh, wow. With the three year exit plan to have a PhD in health and human performance. So, Oh, that's exciting. uh, That's kind of what I'm up to. (laughs) Good for you. Yeah, man. That's awesome. I, uh, it's funny you said that. Do you think, did you get that perspective on life more so after or like during being in the military or what was like the pivotal 100% point that? after? Yeah. yeah. 100% after I had a massive shift in, uh, in, in life in general. Um, <clears throat> during the military, actually uh, the birth of my daughter. Oh, wow. Congrats. Was a huge, was a huge perspective change for me. Um, three quarters of the way through my two and a half year pipeline, she was born uh, oh, wow. right, before, right before combat died. So uh, if anybody in the special tactics now, special warfare community knows anything about like the arduous training that you do at that, that's not the time that you want to be distracted. Um, and that really kind of per, uh, put a perspective on what I was doing in the military and I became less reckless and I became more concerned with my safety, which is, was not always a good thing. Um, okay. You know, so, but yeah, I, I, and then when I, I think when I got out, um, Obviously, my body was completely destroyed. I wasn't able to keep up on a lot of the things physically that I wanted to do and had also a lot of mental trauma just from the pipeline and lots of deployments as a contractor overseas in the combat zones. Uh, I added it up the other day. I spent a year and a half of my life overseas in combat zones wow. as a contractor. And well, thank you for your that, service. That, I mean, believe it or not, that, that adds up like mentally. Yeah, um, for so sure, man. A lot of it was just a lot of self-work, you know, when I, when I got out, I was just like, you know, how do I repair all the damage and the trauma, not only physically, spiritually and emotionally that I've done to myself over the last 20 years. 
Right. Um, and so, but yeah, most of it, like when you, when you're in the middle of it, when you're in, like when you're still active and you're still, you know, in a deployment cycle, like I'm not really sure you have a chance to sit back and have a perspective uh, sure. like, oh, for yeah. the rest of your life. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's tough. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, I have my athletic career, I have my military career and now I've got my, my, basically my, my parenting and, and lifestyle career. Um, You've had so some my goal, my goal, genius. yeah, my goal, if people, I, I have to summarize it for you and not ramble all night on this. If, if I want to be able to dance at my daughter's wedding, I got to change some shit up. Okay. Yeah. Hell yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> I got to yeah. change some shit up. I got to, I got to completely alter my lifestyle, my training and all that kind of stuff. Cause got it. there's things that I can't do at 41 that I would like to be able to do when I'm 60, 70, 80. Gotcha. How do you, just because I'm curious, I always think about this stuff actually too, is like, how do you judge like what you should be able to do at 41, like physically? Like what are like, do you have any, a couple things? That you I like to reverse engineer it. So okay. rather than saying what, what should I do? Like comparing myself to you, because we already talked about comparisons, right? Mm-hmm. I like to, I like to, reverse, I like to reverse engineer it. Like I look at my parents and they're in their late seventies and I look at what they can't do that I wish they could do. Ah, yeah. And okay. I say, okay, well, when, when I'm in my late seventies, and my daughter's in her 30s and 40s. What do I? What 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 would a functioning, healthy, uh, non-dependent mid 70s or 80s or 90s or even a hundred-year-old uh, man be able to do? And you know, there's certain things that you, you should be able to bend over and tie your shoes unassisted. Um, I'm taking some of these quotes out of uh, a Peter Atia speech. Okay, love that guy. Called, yeah, you might want to look it up one day. It's pretty rad. It's called "How to Be a Kickass 100 Year Old." Oh, you know, cool. You should be able to fall down and get up unassisted. Makes maybe sense. Go up, maybe go up two flights of stairs unassisted. Carry two bags of groceries from the from the grocery store unassisted. Nobody's asking you to run marathons or do stupid pre pipeline training shit. But there's a certain quality of life that you should be able to have to live happily unassisted in your, in your late later senior years. And if you're struggling to do some of that shit now, you need to reverse engineer and stop what you're doing in order to be able to do that. Ah, got it. So that's, that's how I would put perspective on it. So oh, I every love morning that. when I wake up and I try to put my Susan shoes and socks on, yeah. it's a task. Okay. I've yeah. Got, I've got a bunch of degenerate uh, discs in my back and I've got lots of trauma and stuff and I've got, I've got to fix that because it's not yeah. going to get worse. Right. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. Over time, that's inevitable if you don't do some different things. Right. Very cool. Oh, that's it. I love that. That's so interesting. Speaking of like injuries, I just to kind of go back a little bit, um, was curious as I was looking through your background and trying to understand your full story. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a collegiate athlete. You were playing, uh, what did I write down here? You played, uh, was it, uh, football, baseball, what was three things. Oh, you played three things. Okay. I did maybe my info is wrong, yeah, which is also a terrible decision. Okay. Okay. In college, I can't even imagine that. Seems... Yeah. <clears throat> it was a terrible decision. Hurt, right? And it was, it was, it was based on arrogance really. Okay. Um, when I, I was a two sport athlete in high school, I was much better in baseball than I was in football, but I grew up in Texas. And if anybody knows anything about Texas, football is king. Yeah. Right. And um, I had lots of people tell me if I would just pick one sport, whether it be baseball or not. I mean, I was, I was looked at to get drafted out of high school. I was looked at to get drafted uh, going into my junior year of college, which is when I tore my ACL on my knee oh, playing wow. football. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of people offer me the opportunities and, and the, the insight to say, if you would just specialize, you know, you're obviously an athlete. We got that. Okay. If you would yeah. just specialize and devote all of your attention to one thing, you could probably be an Olympian. Okay. 
happen later. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, me not specializing in college, not only did it not get the buy-in from my coaches and my peers, but it was more of an arrogance thing for me because I thought I was too good for people to tell me that I should specialize in one sport. Ah, okay. And it came, it came back and bit me in the ass. Yeah. So um, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um sure. But, you know, nowadays with as much – as uh, as these as young kids are specializing, they're playing year round. You know, whether it's baseball, basketball, you know, they're they're literally specializing in those sports, and so the the competition is higher. The days of Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson and all that kind of shit that I grew up with yeah. are long gone. Okay. They're long gone. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so I ended up bouncing back and forth between three different sports in college, um, and track and field was the third sport, and it was just because. I quit football after I tore my ACL because I wasn't playing. I had no future of playing. I was lucky if I was going to get on special teams. I hardly ever made the travel team. Uh, I wanted to get drafted my junior year in baseball. So I went back out for the baseball team, but wasn't good enough because he had five other right-handed healthy outfielders. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I lost football and baseball over the course of one year. Oh, wow. And track a life was, shift. At yeah, that it was. Too, track right? track was a backup plan that was handed to me as a gift um, you know, from the track coach who was at the university, who was a family friend of ours. Oh, wow. And, okay. And the, the, the short version of that was, is he said, Hey, you're too good of an athlete to go bartend down, downtown Austin and just waste your life away. Yeah. Uh, you know, come out to the track team, help me out. Here's some scholarship money. Just, just be an athlete. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Oh, so you kind of got a, yeah, you kind of got a, 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 another chance. A lifeline. Yes. Yeah, no joke. So how did you, how did you even start? How, where did Javelin come from? Like, how did you think? <clears> of, <throat> Javelin's event. Not, yeah. So that, you know, that was the perplexing thing is, you know, having a track coach say, Hey, come out to the track team. And I'm like, I just had ACL surgery. Like I've right. got a bum wheel here, dude. Like <laughs> where's the logic in that? And his sales pitch was, Hey, if you do the decathlon, which is 10 events. Yeah the general understanding is you can literally suck at all 10 events. If you just finish all 10, you've got a chance at scoring a point at the conference championship meet. And in the previous couple of years, the conference championship had always been won by maybe one or two points. And it always oh, wow. came from something or someone unexpected, like a walk on who places eighth in the high jump and scores a point. Lo and behold, that team wins the conference championship by a point. Oh, so wow. his sales pitch to me was if you do do the decathlon, um, you can literally kind of suck at everything, but I just need you to finish all 10 events and you got a shot. Oh, and if cool. you got a shot, you got a shot at winning and that's all I need from you. But as forecasted, I sucked at everything with the exception of the javelin throw, which was event nine out of 10. So I would get laughed at and mocked and ridiculed. And, uh, it was quite embarrassing me trying to run in the decathlon, but in the decathlon, yeah. you know, with a bunch of full-time track and field decathletes you know yeah. most of these guys were from europe who had been had oh. grown up doing track and field their entire life um so yeah it was pretty embarrassing for me but then all of a sudden you put a, a spear in my hand i could throw a baseball 98 miles an hour so oh damn that translated into a spear yeah. a oh, little yeah. bit and all of a sudden i would kick people's ass in the javelin so oh that's cool yeah so we eventually over some really funny stories that happened at a conference championship meet decided to do just a javelin Oh, okay. So you end up just specializing in that versus Correct. the decathlon route. Okay. The first time in my life, I specialized in one event and one sport, and I channeled all my OCD and all my isms that make me me, all my insecurities and all my my I have tos into one sport, just like everybody had been telling me to do my whole freaking life. Yeah. And look what the result was. Right. Oh, yeah. So 
it's weird. You know, I look back, you know, everybody's, you know, it's the what ifs, right? You know, I look back on what if I had channeled everything into baseball when I was 17. Yeah. You know, like, would yeah. I be the new, would I be the Mike Trout? Would I, like, where would that have ended me? Right. Uh, which is interesting. What brings us to this podcast about finance, because based on how I behaved <laughs> with finance, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have been an absolute shit show. If someone would have handed me a couple hundred million dollars when I was 20 oh, years it. old. <laughs> yeah. Could have been a bad move for you. huh? Could have been a really bad move. So yeah. It probably it all works out then. I'm making some mistakes. Right. Oh, that's, yeah, that's wild, Mike. Yeah. yeah. So you, so you, okay. Yeah. So you, and you found success, right? Did you find success? Is that your senior year then that you're, you're like focusing on javelin? My senior year that I decided to focus on javelin. That's wild. Um, okay. But I had had such a busted up knee because if anybody's seen the video, uh, like a YouTube javelin throw. Um, oh, wait, I have I, seen that. My, yeah. yeah. My left knee was my, re- my ACL reconstruction knee. Oh, wow. Um, and so you basically come down a runway, you turn sideways, you jump off your left leg, you stick your left leg out and you hit the brakes and everything spins around it and you throw. It's horrible for your, it's horrible for everything in your body. Oh it's yeah. Compression and rotation under high speed, under high load. Right. But for the left knee in general, um, me doing the decathlon and training for the javelin uh, less than a year out from ACR reconstruction in 1999, granted, this is not like it was, you know, six months ago where recoveries are now two and a half months right um in 1999 it was a stretch and so i had really bad tendonitis and i had really bad knee pain uh so we decided to take a medical red shirt okay. while i started grad school so the the deal that i struck up with, with the coach was um take a medical red shirt i'll pay for your grad school and then you finished your last year of eligibility while you're finishing grad school oh cool yeah. that's a good so gig it was, so right? it was a great deal so i was able to walk away with a four-year undergrad in exercise science with a minor in business and a master's degree in sports management all the while being an athlete. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. Oh, that's a great a combo. Huge blessing. Yeah, for sure. And then, so this is where my, I guess my, my curiosity went to. So then you're, I didn't realize the medical red shirt, but you're, you're there an extra year and you're, you compete again. You have more success as I understand it from what I read online. Yeah. And then at this point you're, <laughs> you know, nearing, you get it, you're getting your grad degree or, or your master's degree. Are you, um, are you thinking like I can, I can be an Olympian at this point? Or are you thinking, yeah, like what is yeah. like, your, what's your, what's your thought of like after, after that, I like mean, what, I where got, am I going with javelin throwing? I got sucked into the American dream. Like I figured, Hey, you know, that was fun. I've got a master's degree. My old roommates working up in Dallas doing pharmaceutical sales, making six figures. Like that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Right. Um, I, and this was 2003, the Olympic trials for Athens were in 2004. And I had went to the U S championships in 2003 and I had a pretty good throw. I didn't, I didn't make the final U S championships. Um, but at least I was there, but I had a throw previously. I mean, hold, if we pause real quick, that's pretty yeah. amazing that you, you pick this up your senior year. <laughs> yeah, and then what later. is this? Two years later, you're at the yeah. Olympic trials. Yeah. Like just think about yeah. that for a second. I was trying to read through that. I'm yeah. like, is that real? It was two I've years never had anybody, I've never had anybody phrase it that way, but yeah, it's pretty wild. I was trying to put a timeline together. I'm like that. Yeah. There's no way that's right. Yeah, that's nuts, that's man. what happened. Yeah, I picked it up from scratch. And then two years later, I was at the Olympic trials competing with the best in the country. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, so I, I got a call from the Olympic development coordinator. And he was like, I understand you're, you know, you're done with school. You graduated. That's cool. You know, the Olympic trials are next year. Where are you going to train? What's your plan? And I was like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, <laughs> I've got a master's degree. Like, yeah. I'm hot shit. I'm going to go get a job. And he was like, what are you going to do about the Olympic trials? And I was like, what about him? And he was like, well, you're qualified. You need to 
like, we'd like to have you at the Olympic trials. And I was like, I, I qualified for the Olympic trials. I had no idea. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Was like I didn't really have anybody. I didn't have a coach at the time. Um, as this whole transitioning was happening while I was graduating, my coach who had mentored me and brought me on and, and offered me this, this opportunity. Yeah. Took a job at Texas tech. Oh, so he's shit. on his way out. I actually went to us championships all by my damn self. Like, oh, I did you really? it was wild. Yeah. Just booked a flight. The university paid for it, flew out there all by my damn self. Got to rent a car. It was like a vacation. To me. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. First trip to California, by the way, 2003. Was oh, that's wild. And, um, yeah. And, uh, he was like, Hey, we got to keep you training. And, um, I, I kind of half-assed it. I didn't okay. really, I mean, I was like, well, you know, training for me is a 40 hour work week. You know, it, it's not like you can just go work out two hours a day and, and call it. It's a full-time okay. job. Yeah. So I've got to find some type of revenue and some type of employment that's going to allow me to still get my 40 hours, or if not more, when you talk in recovery and, uh, and, and all the therapeutic modalities, massage and all that kind of stuff that you have to get as a professional athlete. Yeah. So I was trying to find employment that would basically allow me to do that. And the only two things that I could find were personal training and bartending. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah. I could personal train at a, at a local gym. I was training at Texas A&M University at the time. Okay. Uh, I, found a, I found a gym that I could personal train at, and I could also use their weights. Oh, and that's I, would bar, I would bartend in the evening for extra cash money to help pay off rent and stuff like that. And then trying to be an athlete in between all those hours. Yeah. And it was more of a sales pitch to me. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Olympic trials. You know, it's cool, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Pick up chicks, whatever it would be. Yeah. Sure. Uh, but I do, I, I wasn't really dedicated, you know, obviously bartending, you know, you're staying up late and you're drinking booze and stuff like that. It's not, it's not the great lifestyle as, as if, if you want to be an athlete. Um, so yeah, that's what I did for all of, uh, you know, to the, the end of 2003, when I graduated in May leading up to the Olympic trials in 2004, went to the Olympic trials, was completely blown away by the magnitude and the size of the event. ESPN was there. I was oh yeah, people. I bet. I was seeing people that I had seen on TV. It was the first time I was like, even at, at NCAA uh, Division One AA football school where I was at. Like, it, it was nothing compared to what I was seeing at the Olympic trials. It was a because it's like a full stadium, right? Isn't it? it was Eugene? yeah, and it's like yeah. Great. yeah, yeah. We were in we were in Sacramento at the time. Oh okay. Uh, in 04. yeah. So, um, and I, long story short. Uh, I ended up getting 24 out of 25 guys at the Olympics. Oh, wow. Okay. Next to last. The only guy that I beat, ironically, had a torn ACL. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle. Uh, so I was, again, thoroughly embarrassed at a major competition. And, and, and at this point, you're like, I mean, you're kind of at this, I'm assuming at this point, you're kind of like, you're banking on this becoming more of a career, right? We could go into the Olympics and that I whole thing? I don't think I was, I, I don't think, no, I think I was just too... I think I was, I think the size of the event, very similar to what happened to me at the actual Olympics in 2008, I let the size and the magnitude of everything eat me up. My cortisol went through the roof. My performance levels went down. Um, but what, what was ironic after the Olympic trials was over with USA track and field pushed out, they usually do it the night of the competition. All the okay. athletes get together and, you know, drink booze and celebrate. And we watch video of the competition. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and the biomechanical analysis came out. And there's a whole bunch of different metrics that people use 
to measure how far you should be throwing based on your release angle, your arm velocity, oh, wow. right to left touchdown, the lateral deviation of the jab. It's like hitting a golf ball. It's very I was going to say, it sounds it's like, not, like, like sports science. As, yeah, it's not as easy as just going down and chuck the stick. Sure. Anyways, the, the, the biomechanical analysis came out, and I had one of the top arm speeds of everybody at the Olympic trials. Um, my release angles and my – everything was – lined up for me to have a really far throw okay um and i made i made some mistakes with my footwear it was sacramento in the middle of june uh it was about 110 degrees on the track and i was on this surface that they call mondo which is a super like super tough rough carpet version of a track oh and um i had itty bitty tiny spikes in because i'd never thrown on mondo before and it was basically like steps like planting in uh in, in quicksand like I was oh just so you just couldn't get grip yeah it's like a, it's like a baseball pitcher stepping off the mound to throw a hundred mile an hour baseball but never putting his foot on solid ground in order to deliver the pitch oh got and it so yeah. when i saw that and i realized what could have been I, and then i i looked at what could have been based on my half-assing the training yeah that reshaped everything moving forward for me and i about a week after the Olympic trials, I sat down with my coach and my parents and I said, this is going to sound crazy to you guys, but I want to do this again. And I got four years to make it right. And I'm going to put everything in my life on hold and I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to make the Olympic team in four years. Wow. Everybody was like, cool. Yeah, no doubt. You got the talent. No doubt. You got the work ethic, but how in the are you gonna yeah. pay for this? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that was yeah. 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 That <laughs> sounds expensive. Finance discussion, right? And I was like, I don't know, but nothing else matters to me other than making the Olympic team. I don't know how I'm gonna do it. Sometimes All I, take, that's I, what got it takes. A, I got a, I got a bunch of credit card applications. You know, this is 2004. They used to send you. They actually, they used to send it to you in the mail rather than email. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I would yeah, keep yeah. these credit card applications and say you're pre-approved. And I didn't know what APR meant. I was just like, you know, like <laughs> 9, 10, 15% APR, whatever. Yeah, like whatever. I, I was approved. Sure. And so I just basically took out a bunch of credit cards and started living on that. I packed all my shit. I moved to Europe and I lived in Europe on and off for almost a year and a half. Oh, where in um, Europe? I was in Finland. Okay. Is that yeah. like a big javelin throwing? Yeah. Going to Finland, the way I explained it to people is like going to Finland for the javelin is kind of like going to Mexico to learn Spanish. That's where oh, okay. yeah, they don't have, they're kind of like, you know, their javelin throwers in Finland are the LeBron Jameses and the Kobe's over here. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, I didn't know that. They're, they're on all the, they have all the sponsors, the endorsements are on all the billboards and they're literally celebrities. It's just, and is it's someone weird. from the U.S. were you accepted <laughs> into their culture as be, wanting to become one of them? That's Absolutely. Cool. And I was, they brought me right in, uh, took me in, they embraced me as one of their own. They trained me, they taught me everything, which was fantastic because I came back to the States less than a year later and qualified for my first world championship team. So cool. Big difference. Big difference. Yeah. So, and then, uh, that, that following, excuse me, that following year, 2005 was the first time that I literally just said, I'm just going to pack a bag in May, every May, and I'm going to hit the road and I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to bounce around Europe and I'm going to compete with the best in the world. And I'm going to learn how to do this. And I'm going to get my feet wet and I'm not going to come home until September. Okay. Got it. Uh, and that's how I learned to throw. And that's how I ended up getting on the circuit and uh, just kind of like learned by osmosis. You know, I yeah. watched the best in the world warm up. I watched them throw. I watched them train. I would videotape them and I would study their technique. I would study what they were doing, what I wasn't doing. And I would try to incorporate that into my training. Oh, got it. Yeah. 
and then it how just, would how did you how did you make any money during all this great question <laughs> you don't <laughs> yeah i figure like this sounds like you're i mean you know there's not you know, a whole lot of revenue in you know it's a struggle so financially as a professional track and field athlete now this is things have changed quite a bit currently with the onset of social media okay uh because athletes can market themselves now and i think there was just a rule that was passed in the ncaa that athletes can market themselves and they can yeah, like their names right? while they're considered an amateur athlete but just cool in the in the early 2000s 2004 through you know 2012 when i finally retired social media wasn't that big of a thing i think there were you know facebook was around but you couldn't market yourself like you could nowadays on instagram where you take a picture with a product and you get you know five hundred thousand dollar like five hundred thousand likes and that equates to a thousand dollar a month paycheck right that, that wasn't there so the only ways to make revenue as an athlete, professional athlete, in America was if you had a shoe contract, Nike, Adidas, yeah. Asics, Saucony, Reebok, whatever it yep. may be, um, prize money in Europe. So you go bang, bang it out with the dudes in Europe and fight for prize money, you know, top eight places. Um, and then uh, outside endorsements. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so you would hope to have a local grocery store. Okay. sponsor you and say, Hey, we'll give you a hundred dollars a month. or We'll give you free groceries or a chiropractic clinic that says you can come in and get free adjustments or whatever it may be. Um, and then on top of the prize money in Europe and with the shoe contracts, you have like appearance fees. So like if you're top 10 in the world, just to show up, you'll get money just to get out of bed and show up. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll guarantee, you know, I'll guarantee you that I'll give you two, 300, 400 euros just to show up and then you compete and you go for your prize money. And then after the competition is over with, if you threw a certain distance or ran a certain time, then your shoe company, your shoe sponsor would bonus you for those, for those times. Okay. So those were really the only ways you could make money in the U S because I was a Nike athlete and Nike is in the back pocket of some really corrupt, really, really corrupt businessmen. Oh, they really? Would, they would handcuff you on what endorsements you could put on your uniform. So, you know, it's, it was a really hard sell for like, you know, if I had a a supplement company that wanted to sponsor me and they were like, Hey, we'll give you, we'll give you supplements for free, but what can you do for us? And I'm like, well, I can't do anything for you because I can't put you on my uniform because Nike won't let me. Nike says I have to have a clean uniform policy. So Nike would only allow you to wear a Nike uniform with a Nike check and nothing else on it. If you were to go to Europe, and look at any of the competitions over in Europe, the guys look like NASCAR drivers. They're decked out head to toe with stickers everywhere. Every little sticker and every little patch is a source of revenue or a sponsor. So, you know, it was easy for them to do. And in Europe, track and field and soccer are king. There is no football and baseball to contend with. There's no hockey, really. Well, maybe there's. Um, But like on any given Friday night in the fall, I mean, you can turn on the TV and you're going to see a stadium packed with 80,000 people and it's a track meet. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a it's a completely different world. I had no idea. That's wild. World. Yeah. They don't have the big four sports over here like they don't have basketball. Yeah. Um so over there it's it's soccer is king by far. For sure. Number, yeah. number one sport in the whole world. And right. then track and field is a close second. So that's how you make money as an American athlete in that time frame and it's right. really really hard to do. Yeah, cuz even um, then right and like then, the you know, if you, you spend yeah, and if you, you spend five market months, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you spend five months a year in Europe, you're going to have five months of expenses, right. hotels, flights, physios, massages. So at the end of the year, 
you turn around and be like, wow, cool. I made a hundred thousand dollars. Shit. I spent 90,000 of it yeah. just living. Right. Shit. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's tough. It's tough. There's, there's been a lot of really good interviews for a lot of really highly successful athletes that have had successful athletic careers, Olympic medals, Yeah. you know, and, and people interview them all the time and they say, what advice do you give to someone who wants to do what you did? And almost every single time they will say, don't do it. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just tough, right? Yeah. It's not a, it's like, it's yeah, not a cool. I got a road. tattoo on my arm that has the Olympic rings that I can. I was going to ask, like you have to have an Olympic yeah. tattoo, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's something that no one can take away. But yeah. I spent right. 10 years of my life with virtually net zero game financially. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah, do you think you, do you think overall though, you took away, like you took away, not take away, I guess. Did you, I mean, I, I almost feel like that experience though, we haven't gotten into it yet, but mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine like what that experience must have been like, like that's something you'll just be able to tell your grandkids and yeah. So I mean, it's just like almost about yeah, dollars yeah, on it. Yeah, absolutely. You're hundred percent right. So if you were to take me and let's say I didn't do that for 10 years, let's say I wasn't on the world athletics tour and let's say I didn't hit those 24 countries and travel around the world and see different cultures and experience life in other countries, like, you know, these intangible things that you can't take away. And let's say I was backstage side working in a finance firm or something like that, or a pharmaceutical sales. And all I did was just accumulate stuff. You know, at the end of your life, nobody gives a shit about your stuff. They don't care about your truck. They don't care about your, your house or your boat. They care about your stories and how your stories impacted others. So, people ask me what I do it all over again. The answer is yes. 100% wouldn't turn back. Would I suggest other people try it? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I would do it again because I have stories that will go with me the rest of my life. I have experiences that go with me the rest of my life. Um, Did I have any, any, you know, financial success? I spent damn near everything that I made as an athlete. I had, I had two good years where I made really good money and, um, you know, that's probably something that we'll talk about later in this podcast if we get to it. But for if you've, if you've been living on nothing and you've never had a financial cushion and you see this right. a lot, you know, with these 19, 20 year old kids in the, coming out in the NFL, you get handed a yeah. hundred million dollar contract and they'll blow 80 of 80 million within the first year. Sure. Like if you have someone who's never had anything and all of a sudden you give them a surplus of something, they're going to fucking blow it. Oh yeah. And that happened to me. I remember when I first got my fat, my first fat paycheck from Nike, um, I took out like eight of my friends from the Olympic training center to sushi. Oh wow. Yeah. That, that paycheck was supposed to last me like four months. Yeah. And I went out and blew through it in a week Oh wow! because it was the first time that I'd ever had it. Yeah. And that feeling of, of, uh, of surplus of enough for the first time was like, I've been busting my ass and sleeping on floors and fighting for this feeling for, for six, seven years. And I finally yeah. have it and I'm going to enjoy it. Right. So I, no, did it's it. tough. you know, when, when, you know, here I am 41 years old, you know, 20 years removed from that. Yeah. And I see these kids walking up at an NFL draft with you know, quarter million dollars worth of earrings and stuff like that. And I'm like, you could live off of that for yeah. two fucking years. Definitely. Why would you do that? And then I realized I'm, I'm the, ke- the, the kettle calling the pot black. Cause I did the same thing. Yeah. I did right. the same thing. Whenever you are coming from a place of nothing and all of a sudden you have something, it's really, really hard not to abuse that something. I can only imagine. Yeah. 
I mean, it, we, we had a little spoiler alert there, but it, so, so Mike, oh, he worked his ass off and essentially ended up making the 20, the 2008 Olympics. So that's what you're talking about, right? So how did, yeah. how did, no, 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 you're good. You're good. This is fun. Um, so you, you, uh, to kind of go back a little bit. So yeah. So you, I mean, you obviously you're doing this for, what is that? Yeah. Another three, four years. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, all together. So what it was, changed? Five, it was, uh, it was six years in the making for the uh, Olympic team. Okay. Yeah, so at this point years. you've been, you have been making some money. You're traveling on the, is it a tour that, that I don't even know? Yeah. It's a, it's a circuit, you okay. know, the, yeah. the, the, the world athletics tour as it was called back in the day, they would post okay. a calendar you know, at the beginning of the spring mm-hmm. and say, Hey, these are all the meets. And then it was up to you and your agent or your performance ability to basically try to fight to get confirmed for any of those meets. Oh, cool. Got it. Okay. So you're basically like traveling on the circuit, yeah. uh, competing and, and there's, and there's different tiers of the circuit, you know, okay. just like there is in like major league baseball. It's like not everybody plays in the majors. Right. There's right. Minor right. Leagues, and so there's the same thing as there's major league circuits that have the big paydays that only yeah. the top five, top 10 in the world are going to get into. And then you've got your second tier, third tier, and fourth tier meets that are obviously going to take the spillovers from that. And obviously the financial means at those meets is obviously lower as well. Sure. But sometimes those are, those are some of the most funnest meets. Like dude, just going to like itty bitty meets in Greece. Like, I don't know, like dude, went to, oh, that's cool. I went to, you know, like, there's so many competitions that I went that were just like in these little mom and pop towns that were towns of 3000 people where the oh, entire wow. town showed up for a track meet. And oh, you cool. were the you were the king for three yeah, days, it's like, like a gladiator over there. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. You know, kids were coming up asking for autographs, and you do that on week one week, and then the next week you're at a competition in Paris with eighty thousand people. Oh, whoa! Like it's it it just so that was. I mean, that's that, that's probably something that's not widely known. I mean, that's I didn't know anything about that. So that's pretty cool. I mean, if you're you know at that level, there is circuits and strengths. Not I think I mean I know myself. Like you see the Olympics every four years, and you don't really see what's in between. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah right, everybody right, thinks right. I, hear it, <laughs> I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. It's uh, I actually got propositioned to help train this film producer in LA uh, about a year ago. Okay, about a year out from Tokyo, and this dude, he's a film producer, was like, "I think I want to be an Olympian, and I want to try to make the Olympic team next year." I've got, and he wanted to be a rower. Oh, like an Olympian interesting. Rower. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he was a tall, lanky guy, and he thought he had good cardio. And he was like, you know, I came across your profile and your story, and I think you'd be a good fit to train me. And I was like, Wait a minute. <laughs> Tell me again what you're trying to do. And he goes, I want to make the Olympic team as a rower. And I was like, I'm. I'll never be able to. I'll never be one to tell somebody that they can't have an Olympic dream. And I was like, But you. Sure. I want you to understand what you're going up against. Yeah. Like you're going up against several thousand people who have been training for the exact same thing that you're training for, for over a decade. Yeah. Every day. Right. They went to four year universities on full scholarships. They're at Stanford, Harvard, Yale, all these Ivy leagues, and they do nothing but row their nuts off every day to try to make the Olympic team. And you're telling me you have, you've never sat in a boat in your entire life that you want to train and make the Olympic team. I'll help you. I just want you to know what you're going up against. Sure. Oh, yeah. He called me back about a week later and he was like, yeah, I talked to my promotion team and we all think this is going to be a colossal failure. And I was like, <laughs> you're like, okay, glad, glad we, you understand. Yeah, we're glad going we on. could not go down that rabbit hole for a year. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. I mean, 
Yeah, it happens every year. People, yeah. people come out of the woodwork and be like, oh, shit, the Olympics are next year. I want to try to make a team. Oh, that's funny. I mean, I would, that's, no that's never crossed my mind. That, yeah, you're literally going up against people who do this for a living. Yeah. Like oh, the yeah. I mean, every seems... four years, but every year in between the Olympics, there's a world championships, there's a world cup, there's a world athletics tour. It's like people do this for a living. Yeah. It's their oh, job. Yeah. And you're going to go compete against them. For it's sure. like me going up to you as a finance professional, and I've never cracked a finance book in my life. And I'm going to like, you know what? I'm going to compete against you next week. You, yeah, you could do that though. Shit. <laughs> you could do that. You could, you could, you could get up to speed on finance. No, doubt it. It's funny. That's so funny. I mean, yeah, it's, it's that's crazy to even think about. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I personally watch when I watch athletics. I'm like, that's so wild. I think for me, you know, it's funny. Maybe I think you know, growing up, I was always one that wanted to be like. I think one it was like basketball and football. And baseball those three were like the big three i always want to go pro in absolutely but then you know i don't know i got older and not that i like lost the dream but i just i think i realized i'm not like i wasn't like that gifted in those talents and yeah. uh but it's been funny going back and doing more like crossfit type workouts and now realizing that like i was talking to matt about this like it's one of the few things that i can i i think that it's something that's part of my daily life that i'm doing like functional fitness and then I can watch those guys and girls do the exact same workouts and you can compare and you and like, technically, if you get good enough, you could yeah. make it to the stage. It's kind of cool, yeah. but yeah. it's kind of, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. No, it is. It is interesting. It is interesting. And the whole CrossFit culture, which we talked about on, you know, offline before this started. Um, I, I fully understand why people get addicted to CrossFit and I, I fully understand why CrossFitters want to hang out with CrossFitters is yeah. because metabolic conditioning at its core is fucking painful. Yeah, it really hurts, yeah, sure. right? Yeah. The science behind it is fail-proof. Everybody knows it works. It gets you in a really good shape. If you do it right and you don't overtrain and you don't have orthopedic injuries and stuff like that, overuse injuries. But when you suffer at the level that you suffer physically with other people at the same time, it, it, right. it forges bonds. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, bonds. right. I can sure if anybody's been to a CrossFit class and you've absolutely had your shit kicked in, and you look left and you look right and there's other people getting their shit kicked in at the end of that class you may have never seen that dude or that girl before and you're walking around and you're fist pumping people saying hey good job that was rad that right you just like on. both accomplished something yep. that and i don't know difficult. if that's what greg glassman intended when he when he launched this whole endeavor way back when but i think it was a, it's a pretty interesting byproduct yeah of the community and the other cool thing is is you don't need a team to do it so no. like hey I, I see Matt doing this exercise for this amount of time. It's obviously fucking impressive. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a gym down the street where I can go try the same thing and measure yeah. my metal against him. I'm going to try it. Yeah. You know, it's very I cool. mean, that's what got me into it. Cause like I, uh, you know, I actually, we live, we live outside of Chicago and uh, I'm in the suburbs and me and my wife, we actually turned our two and a half car garage into like basically like a little CrossFit box. It's like fully matted. And for me, it's like, I just go in the garage every day and I'm just throwing down the same things that you can do. They do at the games. It's kind of just fun. I don't know. It's cool. It's totally fun. fun. Yeah. And and, and having it, having it in your garage, it completely eliminates all the craziness, right? Yeah. Oh oh, yeah. Oh, I got time to go to the gym today. Really? It's right there. I, I tell my wife that every day. I'm like, I can't not go in there and do something today. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, What's your excuse, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I got a set up in my garage too. And obviously, you know, with COVID and everything and all the gyms closing down, it's been an absolute 
probably in my 41 years, my wisest investment. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I mean, I don't know what I, we would have done without it. I mean, it's, yeah. it, I had to have tons of buddies in the city that, you know, were offering me all kinds of money to come out and train when COVID really hit, but yeah. you know, that's funny. Do you still do that now? Is that kind of, is, is functional fitness a big part of what you do or what kind of training? I mean, we can go back to the, you know, yeah, the, the no, it's awesome. I'm glad but, you asked me that. But I'm just curious. I'm glad you asked me that. And I hope this resonates with former retired athletes or anybody who is, or even former retired military. Yeah. I was going to say you're both. Who has spent their entire life uh, training to performance standards, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, I have to be able to run this far, this fast. I have to be able to swim this far, this fast. I have to be able to do this many pull-ups, push-ups, push-ups. I have to be able to carry this much load for this much distance. Like spent my entire, I spent 20 years doing that. And yeah. when all of a sudden those restrictions were taken away, I was left with, what do I want to train? And what That's I want to train every day is if it makes me look good naked and it doesn't hurt me the next day, I'm going to do it. I do a little bit of metabolic conditioning. Uh, you know, here's a snapshot of like my, my weekly routine now. Okay. Uh, Monday, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I'll do some type of um, progressive overload training in the gym. So Mondays and Thursdays, I try to do upper body I have torn labrums and ligaments and tendons in my shoulders and my elbow that will preclude me from doing a whole lot of things. Okay. So Mondays and Thursdays, I do upper body stuff, typically non-compound lifting. So no Olympic lifting anymore, ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that where you've had a lot of yeah. injuries from oh, that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's kind I of the one downfall. I, I, try, I try not to load my joints, basically. Got it. Okay. Um, so I do upper body on Mondays and Thursdays, and I try to do lower body on Tuesdays and Fridays. Okay. And on each of those four days, I try to do a 15 to 20 minute Metcom blowout at the end. Okay. Focuses on those specific body parts that I, uh, that I train. So for instance, if I do an upper body, let's say dumbbell bench press, like an upper body push pull type thing on a Monday, the Metcon that I will end my workout with will be an upper body push press Metcon. So the idea of the exercise physiology of being doing muscle damage through progressive overload, you know, gradually going up with weight lower on sets. So doing damage to the muscle and at the end of the workout, feeding the muscle with a shit ton of blood, which is going to be high reps, low weight. So a bunch of pushups, burpees, whatever it may be, so that you get that metabolic response and you get all the blood flow and everything to the muscles to help repair. Um, But at the same time, I get a massive uptick in my heart rate. I burn calories, I burn fat and all that kind of stuff. So that's typically what I, that's kind of what my, my, my game plan is. And then every now and then, you know, every other month I I stumble to the sink in the morning and I'm brushing my teeth and I look at myself, my shirt off and I go, Oh shit. I don't like the way that looks. (laughs) And then I change my program. It's, you know, Arnold had a great quote back in his heyday of, you know, what he trained and like he would literally stand in front of these mirrors at gold gym with his bikini on and he would flex. And he oh. would treat his body like a, a, a block of clay. He was like, yes. I, don't, I don't like how proportionate my traps are to my chest and my shoulders. I'm going to work on that for the next three weeks. Okay. I don't like how my forearms look in proportionate to my biceps. I'm going to work on that. Quads, whatever it may be. So for me, it's a continual work of art, right? Yeah, so right. I, I look at my body and how I feel, and I totally write my own training and my progressions around what I want to do. 
Um, the only Love limiting that. factor is I have a, I have a group of guys who I like to train with that everybody does. The only yeah. limiting factor is trying to get everybody on the same damn page. Which is never, <laughs> I got ever some younger thing. guys who are freaking physical studs and they want to do typical CrossFit stuff. You like clean and jerks. And I'm like, I'm just not going to do that. Dude. I can't. Yeah. If I do that workout today, I will not be able to walk for a week. I'm oh yeah. I mean, fuck that, right? Well, yeah. I want to be able to dance at my daughter's wedding in 20 years. I was going to say, well, I want, started to with, able to, I want to be able to bend over and tie my shoes when I'm 80. Right. If I do that, it's not going to Sure. Oh, yeah. Do you, uh, this is ra- kind of random, but not really. Do you, uh, do you by chance know who Corey Gregory is? Or he goes by like Corey G online. Do you know who that guy is? Okay. He's been on here. He, um, he, he started a company called Muscle Farm, actually. You probably have heard of that. It was like a supplement company. It was like lime green, gray packaging it's I'm like mp sure yeah I, he he i was i do a lot of his stuff now uh it's kind of like a mixture of like power lifting bodybuilding and um really it's really those two but yeah, yeah his big thing is uh which it reminded me of what you were saying his big cardio thing instead of running is lunges mm-hmm. and so he started this thing where people were doing like daily 400 800 meters of just lunges and so i've been doing it uh, let's see, Friday will be my 250th straight day this year of doing over 400 meters of lunges. It's been the best thing I've ever done. It's, it's, <laughs> wow. I've, I've lost I, my body, my body fat percentage is the lowest it's probably ever been. Yeah. And Are it's you like, doing like a 200 meter out and back or. So I just do it from the back of my garage to my driveway and yeah. 12 laps is 400 meters. So it takes me like seven minutes if yeah. I'm moving. And, and you're smoked and completely lactic. And oh, you're, and you're dripping. Yeah. And your knees don't hurt. Like, yeah. oh, and you're building muscle in your quads. And there's no compression on the spine. There's no compression on your joint. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he's a big proponent of it. Spot on. You're spot and on. It reminded me of that of yeah. like longevity. I, I, I actually ran a marathon in 2017, the New York Marathon. Yeah. And my knees were destroyed that, that right for a year. there probably took three years off your life. No, no joke, man. I mean, my, my knees still are not the yeah. same. Like, yeah. I mean, it's 2020. My knees are still kind of fucked. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I was like, I'm going to switch to lunging. I'm going to try this out. And so yeah. anyway, it's, it's a long journey. Yeah, dude, I, same thing with lunges on Wednesdays. Wednesdays are kind of like our active recovery days. Me okay. and the guys, sometimes we'll go down to the beach and there's like uh, flights of stairs. It's 72 steps up. Oh, Not wow. 72 stairs, but you, you space them out two in a row. But we'll go with like a 25, sometimes a 40 pound pack. Yeah. And we'll walk the stairs and it's like a slow stair Ooh, climber. Yeah. And then we'll finish with like an ocean swim or something like that. That's so Same cool thing. by the beach. No, no compression on, you know, on the C spine, no issues on the knees. There's no compression. There's no, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that you've, you've found lunges and you love it because yeah. I, I the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very similar and it's very weird. Similar. It's like going from, you know, the repetitive pounding to something like that. I can see over like a lifetime, like, yeah. It reminds me of like not being able to tie my shoes if I continued running 26 miles every year. Like that's. Uh... Well, I'm looking at my dad and my genetics. My dad was a marathon runner. Okay. He was a, he was an endurance athlete. I don't know where the hell he got it from because I'm certainly not an endurance athlete. Okay. I've yeah. switched to the core. Um, but my dad was an, uh, a marathon runner and he ran his last marathon at 43. Damn. Since that's awesome. since that he has had two knee replacements and he needs two full ankle replacements. Whoa. And he's in his seventies now. And so I look at him, that's my dad. That's yeah. my gene code. That's, that's the path I'm supposed to follow. Right. And I have done substantially more damage to my body, 10 surgeries in 20 years. Oh, damn. Already. Right. Yeah, yeah. Already. And I still probably got at least three more coming once the VA. Oh, catches up How do you know? How do you know if you think you have surgeries coming? Like, because I went through the VA last year and got MRIs and x-rays on everything that hurts. Gotcha. And I okay. saw the results and I was like, oh shit. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've never done an MRI. I always feel like I should probably do that and check out what's going on and just do it. I don't know, man. Maybe not. It's a trip. Sometimes it's better to not know. Yeah. Okay. uh, My shoulder has always hurt me since 2015, since I was doing stuff. Uh, I heard it during a military free fall accident. I was coming down too fast. I hit, I flipped over, I put my left shoulder out to stabilize my fall. And then I tweaked my shoulder and I got up and I was like, Oh, that hurts a little bit. And then it hurt. It hurt for a while, you know, but I was right in the middle of my pipeline. I certainly wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Sure. Um, you know, just cause I needed to just get through and get right. on the team. And then lo and behold, you know, four years later, you're going through medical out processing at the VA. And it turns out like I should read you my diagnosis. I've got two torn ligaments and a labrum tear from two to two to 10 o'clock. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that's what I worry about. I mean, what, you know, I, what's, what's the placebo effect on that though, too? Right. Like, Cause like I'm, I was still doing stuff in the gym and I'm still active, even though my shoulder hurt the yeah. moment I saw the MRI results, I stopped doing everything altogether. And I was like, yeah. well, my shoulder fucked. So yeah. I'm not going to do any of that. Right. So it's almost like, if you don't know, like, yeah, do you, do you really want to know? I know it's funny. <laughs> I was actually talking to my wife tonight because we, so my wife's family has a lake. We, I, would, I got up and started actually getting pretty decent at wakeboarding this summer. Yeah. But this last time I went, I, w- I switched this one arm movement. And I don't know what happened, but when I got done, I just woke up on the next day and like my sh- back of my shoulder was just on fire. But it's been like three weeks. I can't do a pull-up still. Like I don't know what. It's some crazy pain in the back of my shoulder. I'm like, oh, God, I hope I didn't do something. I feel like three yeah, weeks yeah. is a long time to still have that yeah. much pain. It, it only happens when I do a pulling movement. So I don't know. Yeah. To your point, maybe it's better not to know. Just do other stuff. <laughs> just, just work around it. You know, yeah. that's, that's what a lot of people do is they just work around their injuries. Unfortunately, that creates compensations. And the compensations usually always end up with overcompensation injuries. But yes. at the same time, you don't completely halt what you're doing in your lifestyle right. like I did. You know? yeah, sure. And then all of a sudden, I got, I got MRI results on my back and my knee and my ankle. And I was like, like well, shit. <laughs> Back to longevity stuff. Yeah, probably stop doing a lot of what I'm doing. <laughs> right. No, it's good. I think it's good for people to hear too, because I think I know I'm. You know, I'm 28. I'm, and I feel like I'm at the age where like I'm still trying to like just go hard and yeah. PRs and like it's just like it's what I'm I, focused you know, on. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, there's gonna you know we talk about Matt because you had him on your your your, your podcast uh, you know last week. Like there's gonna be a morning where Matt wakes up and he goes, oh shit. Yeah this doesn't feel right. And I'm yeah. like Garth Brooks said, I'm much too young to feel this damn old. And he's yeah. going to have a massive switch, maybe kind of like what Rich Froning did. I don't know what he's doing for fitness. Sure. But there comes a point in time when you're like, my body can no longer do that. And I don't yeah. want to put it through that. And I need to now look out for the next 40, 50 years of my life. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. It was funny actually on the podcast. I asked him what he wants to do. He's got this question a million times, I'm sure. Yeah. But I was like, you know, what are you going to do after CrossFit? Are you still going to do CrossFit like for fun? And he said, I actually want to try to be as jacked as possible. He's like, I want to, I, like, I want <laughs> to spend like a year. That's the fun shit, dude. Right. Sets of one, twos, and threes with like five minutes rest in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Right. I know. Nobody wants to do metabolic conditioning when your heart rate's pegging 170, 180 beats per minute. And you're talking to Jesus making drug deals saying, if yeah. I can get through this. But right. like, dude, just being a meathead and pushing weight for sets of one and two. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, you're right, man. And it's okay. like at the end of the day, you like want it's to look fun. good. So it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's right, fun. right, right. I don't right. blame him one bit. I think he's no. going to be great at it. Yeah, I'm sure he will, right? <laughs> so you put your head to it, and you'll probably be the most shredded person we've seen. Oh, yeah. oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> Is um So I, I want to get back to So Mike here did end up making the Olympic team, which we kind of skipped over. But mm-hmm. I want to definitely go back to that and just – so could you walk us through – 
even if it's high level, because I know I, I don't know what your time looks like tonight, but um, I would love to know like what that moment was like qualifying for the Olympics. I'm sure number one, that's a crazy moment. And then what it was like actually going to <clears throat> the Olympic Games. I mean, that's just got to yeah. be a wild story. Just at least at least a, like a Cliff Notes version of that. Yeah. Um, love to hear it. I actually qualified for the Olympic Games the year before in 2007. Okay. So, which was huge. Um, I, I went to a competition in Spain in September of 2007 and hit the automatic qualifying mark for Beijing in 2008, at which the time only one other American had the A standard. And there was really no l- legitimate chance of, of a contender coming up and knocking me off the, the team. Oh, wow. Okay. So it really took the pressure off. That is that's half the battles and it's, it's, it's a curse of being an American athlete or any, any athlete from a country that has an Olympic trials uh, process where you actually have to go and compete just to make the team. Sure. And then one month later you have to compete at the Olympic games right. because you have to train for two peaks and, and physiologically it's really hard to do. Right. Uh, it's like, I use my bet. One of my best buds, uh, he's the 2004 and 2008 Olympic champion. Uh, Andreas uh, Thorkelson from Norway I mean they told him two years out from the Olympic Games that he was on the team like hey you're on the Olympic team train for the Olympics don't do anything else train for the Olympics so he knew that he was good to go he already had the standard he had the blessing from his uh, from his national organizing committee whereas in in the U.S. you've got to go bang heads a month or a month and a half out from the Olympic team or from the Olympic Games just to be on the team Oh, wow. And that's just due to the, amount, the, the sheer volume of talented people we have. Yeah. 350 million people, you're going to have more than one person who's good at, at an event. Sure. So, yeah. unfortunately, you have to show up to the Olympic trials, do your best performance of the year, hope you have placed top three at the Olympic trials with a standard that's good enough to get you into the Olympics, and then you have to completely retool it and be ready to do it again at the Olympics. For most people, it doesn't work. Okay. For most people, with the exception of the sprints, like because it's it's a not a technical event. Like you can have an American who's all hopped up on drugs, run a nine seven one hundred meter dash at the Olympic trials, and then a month and a half later be able to repeat it at the Olympics. It's not that hard. But for technical event athletes, yeah, really hard to do. I really bet. Hard. Um, so, but for me to be able to get the standard, which for most people was the hardest thing to do, um, was a big relief for me. So I was able to basically go into the Olympic trials knowing that I could just perform average and still be on the Olympic team. Okay. So I was ranked yeah. seventh in the world going into the Olympic trials oh, and the Olympic games. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was good and I knew I was good. And so I had that sense of comfort knowing that I was I had a really good chance of making the Olympic team. Obviously when I actually made the Olympic team, it was bittersweet for me because I got second at the Olympic trials. I should have won it. I knew I should have won it. Yeah. I had 15 competitions over the distance that I threw at the Olympic trials. Oh damn. Really? I would have won it. Yeah. Um, so it was bittersweet, but my parents sure. was there. My parents, my family, they were all there to celebrate with me. It was July 4th, 2008. Well. That's cool. Oh, so wow. I got to celebrate making the Olympic team on July 4th. Um, so it was just awesome. But the, the aftermath after that, um, I didn't handle very well. Okay. Um, I let the, because all of a sudden now you're on the Olympic team and the eyes of my hometown were on me. 
all my friends were, you know, it, it, I let the size of the competition eat me up inside. It's gotta be hard um, though. I, I mean, like how, how do you not? Of course it's hard. Right. I mean, yeah. does, does anyone coach you on that? I mean, does anyone on no. the Olympic team? Like, I mean, there's no way, right? No, no it's an individual sport. Like everybody's yeah. out for the, to, for them. Right. Sure. You know, yeah. I mean, even if you're a, a four by 100 meter relay runner or something like that, it's an individual sport. So everybody's worried about taking care of themselves. Um, but I, I did a bunch of things that I shouldn't have done leading up to the Olympics that I hadn't done all year. I had a very successful career leading up to the Olympic trials and the Olympic games. Why wouldn't I just continue doing what I was doing? Sure. Like just push print. Like right. the, the success is the recipes already made, but instead I redid a bunch of things. My, you know, my coach and I both. And, but the, the intent was to have a better outcome at the Olympic games. Right. It's not like, we knew if we change a bunch of, a bunch of things that it's going to backfire. Um, my training was spot on. Like I threw really, really far my last training session before the Olympic games qualifying. There's nothing physically uh, that I would have done really different. It was all mental for me. Okay. Um, yeah. I let the pressure of the Olympic games and being on the world stage and having all my contracts hinging on how I performed yeah. all my, you know, my, my, my agent at the Olympic games, hoping I make the final so that they can, she can book the rest of my 2008 season overseas. Like I let all of that spin out of control. There's just so much to think about in the moment Stress, versus yeah, just and, throwing and, the javelin. Yeah, right? And what we know uh, physiologically, what happens when you let that type of stress build, your body produces cortisol yeah. to combat the stress and cortisol is a performance killer. Yeah. Um, Every single one of my farthest throws in my highest finishes in major international competitions have came from situations where I was completely relaxed or wasn't even supposed to be there or didn't even have my equipment. My lifetime personal best came at a competition in Doha, Qatar in 2008, in May of 2008. I didn't even have my, my bags didn't even make the fucking flight. Oh, really? No. Yeah. I, I, I threw in a borrowed Qatar national uniform. My buddy Andreas, I threw in his Adidas spikes. I was a Nike athlete throwing in Adidas spikes that I had never worn before. Oh, I was wow. drinking beer at lunch because I didn't think I was going to compete at night. Like, I had zero Fs to give. Yeah. And as a result, you threw your I was best. able to go out and let my performance level just shoot through the roof. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. It's, con- it's completely counter-addictive where, or counter counterintuitive whereas if you look at the olympic games where i was completely trained and prepared to the if i had an eyelash out of place i had someone to work on it yeah you know, if i oh this doesn't feel right i had three massage therapists to work on it hadn't had that all year yeah yeah, yeah. right you know, i certainly didn't have the stress levels i had when i was going to, to the olympic games my contracts weren't on the line my fin- financial stability wasn't on the line yeah so um yeah I, I let the size and the magnitude of everything eat me up cortisol went through the roof and my my performance level just went through the toilet yeah it was was the craziest thing man it's like it was like i came down the runway you know the the saying is i had uh up to that time i had six years of training leading up for 15 seconds of performance that's so nuts that's so crazy it's not even like one game it's not even like one 15 seconds of my life and six years six years of training and build up for those 15 seconds and during those 15 seconds, while I was actually coming down to throw, I was, it was like an out of body experience. I was, was it? I was, I felt like I was running underwater. Um, nothing felt 
nothing felt normal. My proprioception of where I was in relationship to the runway, to the throwing sector was completely off. I felt lost and it had everything to do with my mental state and the cortisol and the stress that was all self-induced. Nobody, my parents parents didn't put that on me. They were at the Olympic games. Yeah. Like no one put any stress on me other than me. No one gave a shit how I performed. My roommates at the Olympic training center didn't give a shit how I performed. They were yeah, out for them. there. Right. They were, yeah. Well, they were out for them. Oh, they were there. Oh, they, they were, were worried there about yeah. their own performance. <laughs> sure. It's not like anybody checked my performance after the Olympic games qualifying round was over with and didn't sleep that night because I did that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, all, it was all self-inflicted wounds. Um, and I, you know, obviously you don't realize that until it's all over with and you zoom out and, but, and one of the real reasons that I realized that was the case is because I was obviously depressed and, uh, I was drinking heavily and I wasn't training and I went like on a week long bender. I flew from Beijing, China to Belgium and competed at a competition in Belgium on no sleep and had a massive throw, which would have qualified me for the finals in the Olympic games. So I knew my body was ready. My yeah. body was 100% ready. It was all my head that wasn't. Okay. Whoa. That's right. wild. Crazy. Yeah. Was it, was it crazy? Like, I can only imagine being in that fully packed stadium about to go. Was that, what is that? Do you remember what that moment was like? I don't remember the crowd at all. No? Really? The crowd at all. Just totally blacked um, it out. Totally blacked it out. It was like throwing in a vacuum. It was an out-of-body experience. I was so... I was so obsessed with how uncomfortable I was and how okay. out of the norm it was. I never really got a chance in, in like the panic that's associated with that. I'm sure. Like how come I, how, why don't I feel the way I felt the last 15 competitions where I threw really well, yeah. which allowed me to have a top 10 in the world ranking. Right. What am I, what am I missing? What, what, like, you know, so it was like the self analyzation process when all of I, well, all I should have been doing is just relaxing and enjoying yeah. it. And right. If you, look at, you look at the people that, you know, like my buddy Andreas, who ended up winning the damn thing with the Olympic record. If you look at his demeanor in a competition and the guys that were two, three time repeating Olympians that had been there and had done that, they treated it like every other competition. They're smoking and joking and popping okay. jokes with each other in between throws and stuff like that. Right. And it was the people that had never really been there before that were treating it like if it was life and death. Like, if I don't do well, I'm going to die. Yeah. Those are the people that had the deer in the headlights look in between throws that were just like, <laughs> right. And that was me. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's tough. I mean, that's to <clears throat> your point that the, how it means so much time and energy goes into that one moment. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easy to talk about it now, right? In 2020 and we're sitting here it on a is, podcast yeah. and we're like, hindsight, man, crazy, crystal clear. Yeah. But I mean, so cool, right? I mean, it's something you, you will have forever. Got the tattoo. You're yep. set there. That's cool. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's wild. So then, you know, that all happens at this point. I mean, financially career wise, like when you left to get with the games, did you, Mike, know what, like, where was it going from there? I know you had an injury shortly after, but like at that point when you're leaving, was it? Yeah. Well, I had wanted to, I had wanted, the, the military was always in the back of my mind. Oh, okay. Um, it was I actually plan. did some training with the SEALs in 2007 um, okay. at the NSW facility in Coronado. They took a group of the athletes from the Olympic Training Center uh, out to Coronado. Um, it was, a, it was a, it was a, it was a two-sided um, what's the word for that? 
um, the, the intent from the Naval Special Warfare uh, community was to test Olympic caliber athletes to see if they could get through training and how they handle it mentally. Oh, and the flip side of the coin was it was team building for the Olympic training center athletes. So NSW wanted, because they obviously every special operations pipeline has an attrition issue where you can put as much water in the end, in the hose as you want, but the end of the hose is only this big and there's only so many people that are going to get through it. Yeah. So to try to alleviate that and to try to find out, well, if we put more qualified candidates in the end of the water hose, maybe we'll get more water out the hose. Yeah. So there was a lot of research that was done in the mid 2000s, especially with the SEALs, um, for how to lower their attrition rate because it was costing the Navy a lot of money. Okay. They bring a lot of these kids, you know, they PCS from permanent changing station from other places throughout the country and they come to Coronado and they last two days and they quit. Oh. So now there's a big logistical nightmare of what do we do with these kids? Yeah. You know, what do we do with their family that just moved out here? And so the intent was to find a better product to give uh to these special operations pipelines but but that day that i spent getting the shit kicked out of me which was a 12-hour day we did day two of first phase of buzz oh shit. Um, okay and they hit us pretty good like yeah. we did everything from the obstacle course to log pt to surf torture to boat pass it was in december and this is as an olympian right you're like you're a civilian it was 2007 place. so okay. i had already qualified for the oh, games. okay wow okay but i was yeah. still i was still getting ready for my 2008 season got this was, it it was december 17th so it was winter down here the water was cold as shit yeah so it was a really interesting experience and the the takeaway for me when that was over with was if I don't make the Olympic team in 2008, like if for some strange reason, I don't do what I think I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to walk away from athletics and I'm going to the military in 2008. Got it. Okay. Um, obviously that didn't happen because I made the Olympic team and everything got pushed forward four years right. to London 2012. But I knew that in 2012, I was going to be uh, 20, I was going to be 33 in 2012. So I knew I was going up against a time crunch. Okay. Uh, to get into the military and that, and to scratch that itch to serve. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the transition happened. If I hadn't made the Olympic team in 2008, I had every in, intention of retiring from athletics and being like, well, that was fun. I didn't make yeah. money. I didn't make an Olympic team. Right. I'm out of here. Yeah. Right. That was the intent. Okay. Um, but obviously it, it obviously worked out. And 2008 was great. 2009 yeah. was great. 2010 was sketchy with a shoulder injury 2011 was great first national championship after the i know yeah right second u.s championship silver medals um and that led me into 2012 which i finally ended up blowing out my ucl on my elbow which forced my retirement and then gotcha military right after that yeah okay so it was just like at that point you, you can't you can't throw javelin anymore after that yeah it was very similar to my left acl when i was in college it was i was like, gonna say it's kind of crazy you had a few of yeah. those things happen to you yeah injuries get pushed you know push you out so. yeah and then, so how did you, and you went into the Navy to be a SEAL, right? That was like the first Yeah, step. initially. So I wanted to be a SEAL. I mean, I lived here in San Diego. I was at the Olympic Training Center down here in Chula Vista. Uh, my neighbor that I was living next to was a 22-year veteran of the SEAL teams. Oh, wow. Um, he was kind of my mentor, the guy I looked up to. Um, I looked up to him and all of his friends. I saw the camaraderie and the bond, the the relationships that he had a lot similar like you would get in the crossfit community like okay when you yeah forge relationships through adversity right right um so uh yeah i was like hey you know the military is where i want to be 
I'm really good in the water, believe it or not. I love the water. I can swim like a fish. I do a lot of spear fishing. I surf oh, cool. a lot of time underwater. So amphibious operations was almost a no brainer for me. Okay. So seals were a good fit. They're missing. That's probably seals. rare, right? And yeah. I don't know how often that is, but I mean, I can't imagine that's a commonality in the U.S. Probably. Yeah. Well, which which part? Just like being that that um, I guess that like welcoming to the water before actually going into the Navy SEALs is that pretty common of guys that go into the SEALs? Yeah, I don't know. I think you see a lot of a lot of guys, you know, a lot of collegiate water polo players who spend a lot of time in the water. Yeah. Um, ended up doing well in 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 the in the Navy. I mean, guys that grew up you know, California coastal that spend a lot of time in the water, lifeguards and stuff like that. I mean, because the water is a huge part of, you know, SEAL training. Sure. Uh, but yeah, that was my intent. I wanted to be a SEAL. Um, also, it was coming off the back of the Bin Laden raid in 2011. So maybe right. SEALs were hot shit. Yeah. Fox News is all over them. And, and society and the media, unfortunately, today, it's kind of the same thing. Think that the SEALs are the gold standard and yeah. I wanted to be measured up against the gold standard. So yeah, you we're an Olympian and you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I gotta be the best in that. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense. Why would I not want to be the best of the best in special operations community? Yeah. Um, so, um, <clears throat> leading up to 2012, um, I obviously had done all that research with my neighbor and I had to actually submit a package, um, to get picked up as a civilian to get commissioned in the U S Navy through the Naval, uh, officers, uh, OCS officer candidate school okay. to actually come into the Navy as a Naval officer to go through buds. So there's a, there's a process. Yeah. There was also an age cutoff. And I knew that in 2011, I was going to retire in 2012 at the Olympic games or at the Olympic trials. I was going to retire. Oh, like I okay. was not going to come back and compete after 2012. Yeah. I was heading to the military. And so in 2011, I had to start that process. And Got the it. very first, process the very first uh part of that was to get an age waiver because i was 32 in 2011 33 in 2012 and the cutoff was 30 and under for seal officers oh wow so i had to apply for a waiver um and i will never forget the day that i got my waiver yeah i bet yeah <laughs> uh, Huge unlock, I, was, right? I was in stockholm switzerland sorry uh, stockholm sweden I left Switzerland the week before from a competition in Lucerne. Okay. Went to Stockholm for a competition in one of the biggest competitions of the year. It's called the Stockholm Diamond League, um, where I was with some of the best of the best in the world, top 10 guys in the world. Yeah. And I had a horrible, horrible competition. And it was July 4th, by the way. Oh, geez. So, okay. Yeah. So three years after I made the Olympic team in 2008, I was at a competition in, in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, horrible competition. Didn't make the final. One of the worst throws of the year for me. And I went back to my hotel room and I got a bottle of wine and a big hunk of chocolate and I started to <laughs> self-medicate <laughs> and I opened up my email and I had received an email uh, from the Navy saying my age waiver was approved. Oh, wow. And what that, a wild day. And that like shifted my, per my perception, obviously, as to I now have a snapshot of my future. I now yeah. know what my future is going to be like. And honestly, from that moment on, I disassociated from track and field and I didn't give two shits about it. I knew where I was heading. Okay. And, and I'm going to turn my light on. Yeah, I go for it. I'm running out of uh, light here. There you go. I, I know it's getting up. dark. Yeah, it's, it's sunset out here now. Um, I knew where I was headed and um, that kind of obsessed me. And, okay. uh, you know, I was still training. I was still coming off the backs of a national championship. I was still kind of a favorite to make the Olympic team in 2012. Um, but yet this, this whole Navy SEAL thing was looming in the background and it was right. daunting. Yeah. I knew it was coming. 
Um, so anyways, this coming off the backs of the Bin Laden raid, it was kind of a shit show. Every dude with an MBA coming out of Harvard or had been working at Wall Street wanted to be a SEAL officer. So the Oh, really? Was that a th- I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, oh my gosh, dude. Oh, Applic- really? Applications to be part of, of Naval Special Warfare went through the freaking roof. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, unprecedented. So okay, um, and in order to deal with that, they implemented a board review process where they said, "Hey, um, our top forty candidates, we're going to all bring you out to Coronado." And um, I got to get my date straight. August of two thousand twelve. Okay. So this is after the Olympic trials, after I had blown out my ulnar collateral ligament. Right. Um, after I had my right ankle scoped, uh, right when I retired, because I was trying to, trying to get healed up to get ready for butts. We're going to bring all 40 of you dudes, our top 40 candidates to Coronado. And we're going to go head to head. Um, and we're going to make you guys basically duke it out for 25 positions, 25, they would call it billets for fiscal year, 2013 for seal officers. Got it. Okay. So 25 spots, 40 dudes to compete. So me and 39 other freaking Captain America looking dudes all showed up at Coronado. We did a physical screening test called PST, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, swim and a run. Um, and then we sat down and we did a, a round robin commanding officers interview panel where I sat down with like five or six uh, senior ranking Navy SEAL officers and we asked questions and answered questions and we basically just talked about how we got there and what we wanted to do, answered questions about the community. And when that was over with, they were like, hey, congratulations. Um, you got billet 24 out of 25. So you're next to last. Okay. Because you're old. Yeah. <laughs> you're old and you're slow. Your runtime sucked. Okay. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> and you're like, old. Hey, I got a bum and, knee, man. And yeah. You, so, you know, we've got plenty of other young strapping 23, 24 year old kids, uh, kids, you know, yeah. men. Um, that aren't going to have the same limitations that a busted 33 year old is going to have granite, sure. Olympian, which is cool. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that was the plan. So the idea was sometime through the course of 2013, preferably sooner than later, you would class up with your, your team at office or not at not with your team. You would go to officer candidate school, which is like eight weeks up in uh, Rhode Island. And then you'd spit back out in Coronado, meet up with your team. And then off you go and your buds seal career. Got it. Well, Come November, Mr. Obama got reelected. Yeah. And he passed this little thing called sequestration. And what that did was essentially cut the Department of Defense budget by several billion dollars. And as a result wow. of yeah. that, Naval Special Warfare lost 50, uh, 10 billets. So billets, uh, we, had, we had 40, 25 billets. So billets uh, 25 through 16 got chopped off. Oh, wow. They basically said, hey, our top 15 guys have got spots and they're going forward for fiscal year 2013. You guys have, you, you 10 guys, you have, yeah. you, have a, you have a choice. Wow. You can either forget the officer thing and enlist and worry about that. You commission later. It's called the Mustang route um, and commission later. Or you can take this package that you put together and we can roll it forward one calendar year. And in August of next year, you come back and you do this all over again and you fight for another spot. All 10 of us were like, fuck that. I went in. I'm enlisting. I was the only one who was over 30. In 2011 and 12, there were no age waivers for enlisted SEALs over 30 years old. We weren't getting in. So just like that, I went from having a job to not having a job. And the 
Air Force as a combat controller was literally my backup plan. Got so it. I okay. On my backup plan once I lost the billet. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Wild. And then so and then you go. So then you're like, okay, fuck it. I'm gonna do the Air Force thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. And yeah. well, what's what's like the major difference between? I mean, obviously this sounds very arrogant, but like Not I much. know from my our my our mutual yeah. friend Alan who hooked us up. Yeah. Shout out to Alan. Um. Obviously, the difference. I know the difference between the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, my grandpa yeah. was in the Navy, actually. Um, but like, what was? Why did you pick that as like your second route? Well, I reached out to a, 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 a an Olympic teammate of mine um, whose husband was in the Navy, um, and he worked in the SEAL teams. And he got out as an officer. He got out, and then he enlisted in the Air Force and Air National Guards as a combat controller. And so when this, this particular teammate of mine found out what happened to me, she said, you got to call my husband. He's at an air national guard unit as a combat controller. You got to talk to him. Like if you want to get in, if you really want to serve and you want to get in a fight, yeah. you talk to him because this is the way to go. So I started some Google research in combat control and I was blown away on how, well, I, I wasn't surprised on why I'd never heard about it because I never researched it. Like, okay. Yeah, sure. Um, but when I actually found out what the job description was, and the unit that I was trying to get into, I was like, this is fantastic. It's, it's the same job. It's the same special operations command curriculum. Just the combat controllers have an emphasis on air assets. The okay. Navy has an asset. The Navy and the SEALs specifically have a emphasis on direct action and, uh, you know, like over the beach amphibious assaults and stuff like that. Yeah. But the curriculum weapons training, um, you know, the closed circuit scuba training, the military free fall training, all that is the same. It's the same oh, wow. SOCOM mandated curriculum. So Got it. you get the same training as the SEALs do. Um, it's just for the, and for the air force, it was because we have a lot more training schools. We have a lot more academic stuff that we would have to do. Okay. Our training pipeline was spread out over two and a half years, whereas the oh, SEALs wow. get here in and out in damn near less than a year and you're fully operational. Oh, jam. And, and, okay. and, and you're in the deployment cycle. Whereas for, you know, combat controllers and pararescue men, you spend two and a half years just going through the training pipeline. If you're lucky, if you get hurt or if you have an academic washback, some, some guys spend four years of an entire enlistment still training before they're even operational. Oh, it's damn. just, it wow. takes that much longer. So, um, no, no disrespect or knock to the seals. They're awesome at what they do, but for the air force, it's much more academic yeah, that uh, makes sense. And equally as proportionate physically. Got we it. We have okay. like the same run standards, the same push-up swim, all that standards the same as the SEALs, but we have a shit ton of academics that we have to do as well. Got it. That makes sense. And then yeah, I'm very arrogant in this regard too. Is the the difference between the two like financially different? Like is nope. it all same. no all the, same. Get, all the ranks get paid the same. Got um, it. Okay, never so, do that. So a lieutenant commander uh, Navy SEAL is going to get paid the same as a, as a major uh, Air Force combat controller. They're going to have the same, I think that's right. Ensign, Lieutenant Junior Grade, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander 04. Yeah, Lieutenant, First Lieutenant. Yeah, so you've got a major and a Lieutenant Commander, a SEAL, and an Air Force combat controller or a pararescueman are going to get the exact same pay. Got because it. Their, their, their commission rank is going to have the same pay and their special duty and their hazard pay will be the same. The only thing that's going to differentiate the difference, differentiate the two is going to be where their uh, basic allowance of housing is. Oh, so okay. if, you're, yeah. if you're in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, your basic allowance of housing is going to be a shit ton less than it is if you're living in Coronado. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that's the only okay. difference. But everything probably, else, is, yeah. everything else is literally the same. 
And the reason for that, as far as training wise, is because when the SEALs deploy and they go out and they start to do a, a mission set or an operation, they're going to take one of us with them. Oh, so we have to it. be able to do everything that they have that they can do. So if they want to oh, jump into a target, we got to jump with them. If they want to lock out of a submarine and swim subsurface to a target, we got to go with them. If they want to fly in, if they want to fly in on a helicopter and walk 15 clicks up the side of a mountain at 9,000 feet, we got to go with them. So we have, we are like the air to ground liaison for special operations units. So it's not only SEALs, it's, uh, you know, it's MARSOC, it's army rangers, it's, it's, um, ODA teams from the special yeah. forces. We have to be able to maintain the standards that they do because we're going with them wherever they go. Didn't know that. Oh, that is wild. Okay. Not many people do. It's, yeah, not, yeah, it's yeah. not a very highly publicized career field. And I sure. don't know why that is. They're trying to get better at it. Yeah. They recently changed the, the name from Air Force Special Operations Command to Air Force Special Warfare because the Navy has Naval Special Warfare. Okay. So I think they're trying to piggyback on some of the popularity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I never thought about, I never thought about careers in the military as being like backed off of like what the media and like oh, what's one, popular. That's so interesting. I never yeah. in a million years would have thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, in, in some of the mainstream media outs, like, you know, Fox news is the worst. I mean, there's a couple of Navy SEALs who are married to Fox news anchors. Like, oh, so they just figure. like fed so information. Anything that has to do with the military and special operations is going to get fed to the SEALs immediately. And they're going right. to want to go interview a Navy SEAL to get his input. Even if it was an AFSOC operation or a MARSOC operation or an Army SF team that did the operation, instead of going to one of those operators, they're going to go to a Navy SEAL and say, what do you think about that? Oh, and in the general public like you and you know my mom and dad are sitting at home watching Fox News over at dinner. And they see an operation go down overseas and they're interviewing a Navy SEAL that had nothing to fucking do with it. Oh, that's fucked up, actually. That's like super fucked. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like that at all. That's so it's, strange. It's so weird. It is weird. Um, huh. It is weird. It is weird. Yeah. There's a little animosity. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's such it, a it, weird it thing. Boils, it, boils cycle, down to you know? it boils down to jealousy. It's yeah, right. They, right. they get a lot of media attention and you know people kind of think that those guys are superheroes sure when in retrospect there's a lot of other people in the special operations community that are doing equally as cool or more dangerous or more high-speed stuff they get no notoriety at all and that goes into the whole you know quiet professional lifestyle right Um, no that makes sense that totally makes sense so then i guess last like question about the military and like you know the finance side of it is um is that something, you know, if you want to stay in it and be a, you know, a career military personnel, is that something that you can kind of slowly but surely work your way up and, and do pretty well? Is that, I mean, I, I have no, you know, understanding of how that works. Yeah. Is that, is that, well, is that a possibility for people who are interested it, in the military? Let's look at it, you know, and I've, I've, I've known a few people that have done this. So let's, let's say hypothetically, you're 18 years old, you graduate high school and you have no idea what you want to do. Yeah. You can string out a military career of 20 years let's just assume it's a, it's a low impact, low stress job. Let's say you go to the air force chair force, as they like to call it. Okay. And let's say you're just running admin or you work in an office. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And if you deploy, you deploy to a non-combat zone and you work in an office. And so basically you become a 20 year desk jockey. Yeah. So you start when you're 18, you retire when you're 38, you have a, you have you have health insurance for the rest of your life. Oh, wow. You have a pension. So you have a, you have partial of your pay of the highest earning years of your military that you've got that you can take with you. You've got education benefits that you can take with you. Um, 
did you give 20 years of the, probably the highest earning part of your life away to the military? Yeah. Yeah. And did you make good money while you're doing it? No. I yeah. mean, you don't get paid well you're in the military. That's not why people do it. Right. Right. Um, but you can eventually start a whole new life at 38. Right. And have a lot of things given to you. you go to yeah. a four year, go get a four year master's degree, six year degree, and it's paid for. Wow. While you have life insurance, health insurance, and you have all that stuff. So it is a it is a valid business move, financial move for some kids who don't know what they want to do when they're 18, don't have the financial means to go to college, don't have scholarship opportunities, not athletes. Right. It's a good, it's a good business move. Sure. Oh yeah. It totally makes sense. Yeah. It totally makes sense. Um, I know, you know, especially if you're someone who's young and don't know what you want to do, but you're interested in it. I mean, lots of opportunities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of opportunities. Um, and so you, you were in the military for, what, was it seven years, eight years? <laughs> Six years. So yeah. six years. And then, um, what was kind of the, what, what was the notion to, to leave? What was, what kind of switch for you? I'm, I'm so curious of all your steps in your career. It's yeah, it was, it was multifaceted. Um, it was a combination of my body being completely destroyed okay. um, from the special operations training injuries. Had, I was a high mileage vehicle before I even got into the military. Right. Um, I had, uh, my last, um, unit level training exercise was in the fall of 2018 i think it was okay and we went and we did some pretty physically strenuous training um where we did uh almost like a week consecutive of like overnight operations where it was all simulated combat stuff oh okay um but you know we would prep for the mission all day we'd launch for the mission around six or seven o'clock in the evening and then we would have to travel overland on foot up and through arduous terrain. And, you know, we'd finish the mission at four or five in the morning. We'd go home, we'd refit, we'd debrief the mission, get ready to do it all over again. I found myself unable to keep up with my teammates. Okay. Um, a lot of my teammates at that unit were um, 10 years younger than I was. And some of those guys were coming out of the tier one units. So they were tactically more advanced. They were physically more advanced. Um, they had more knowledge and more skill sets than I do. So I felt outmanned out, out and outgunned. That makes sense. Um, I was looking left and right going, fuck okay. I, I cannot get to the objective and adequately do my job because I'm physically fucking destroyed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was, that was, um, that was one part of it. I, I didn't feel like I could physically keep up anymore. The second part of it was, um, I was going through a divorce Okay. And my daughter was my, my, my world. And I wanted to be there for my daughter and I didn't want to do anything that would jeopardize my life in danger anymore. That would take me away from her. She needed a dad. Got um, it. She was, she was three at the time. Makes sense. Um, so that was, that was the second part of it. And the third part of it was um, my job description at my unit was changing and I had no future of ever doing what I was hoping that I could do at my unit and deploy in the capacity that I was wanting to do it. And it strictly had to, everything to do with um, me coming to the unit that I was assigned to as a very junior um, operator, okay. not having any prior service. I was the first person at my unit to show up off the streets through the pipeline. Everybody else at my unit had come in through some prior service channel. And then, oh, and then yeah. six, 10, 12 years at an active duty unit and then came out to the Air National Guard unit. So I immediately got integrated into a very, very experienced team. Right. And all of the deployment opportunities that 
come with an Air National Guard unit that are supposed to be really awesome were getting snatched up by people who were far more educated and far more skilled than I was. So it would almost, the good analogy I would use is you sign a contract that says you're going to go play football for a team and the contract says you're going to be the quarterback. And you go through two and a half years of training where you get your shit kicked in and you, you suffer and you're beat up, you, you, you know, everything that you hear about in Navy SEAL training or anything like that, you, you endure that right with the, the goal at the, the light at the end of the tunnel of being a quarterback on a football team. And then all of a sudden football season starts, you get drafted onto a team, you show up and then the head coach goes, I know you want to be a quarterback and I know you've been trained to be a quarterback, but we kind of have a lot of quarterbacks. How about you go play offensive line? Oh, got it. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. what happened to me. And I was, I felt like I You're had like, no future. Yeah. I had no future of doing what I was trained to do and what I wanted to do and what everybody else who I went through the pipeline was getting a chance to do. Yeah. And the people who came before me that were at my unit that I followed their footsteps in the pipeline. Sure. I wasn't, I wasn't, that was taken away from me. Got it. Um, and it was, a, it was a product of a bunch of different, it was timing. Um, the unit was undergoing a bunch of changes. We had a bunch of senior leadership changes. Um, I had a bunch of shitty senior operators on my, on my unit that um, were very insecure. When I showed up, I was threatening oh, to them because yeah. I was an older guy. I was an Olympian. I had a master's degree. And these are guys that had done nothing but, you know, operate for the last 15 years. So sure, yeah. I was, I was, I was, thrown into a very strange team dynamic where half the guys embraced me and were like, dude, fucking rad resume. Like you should be the poster boy of this team. Like we need more guys like you, like, you know, guys who made the decision in their thirties to come fucking yeah, right. rather than when I was 18, because I didn't know what to do with my life. 100%, um, and man. then you had the other, the other group of guys that were super intimidated by that and didn't want to have anything to do with me and didn't want to teach me anything. So right. um, all of those things wrapped up into a ball, but the primary focus, the, the main reasons were I, I couldn't physically keep up and I thought I was a liability and I wanted to be around for my daughter. Yeah. No, that makes those, sense. Those are the real, and I'm really glad that I got a chance to talk to you about that because I haven't really had a, a good chance to verbalize that in any old yeah. form recently. So no, it makes total sense. I mean, I, I followed you on Instagram and, and kind of got the vibe there that I was like, Oh yeah. I mean, he's a dad. He probably, I figured that yeah. was a big driver, you know, I mean, it makes so, so much sense. And uh, yeah, I got a lot of buddies of mine that are coming up on, they're coming up on eight, nine years in the teams, you know, and they're just now starting to have kids and shit's changing. Yeah. They don't, they don't want to do what they used to do. I'm sure to your point, like I can't imagine going into, into conflict, you know, without a kid and then going into it the day after you were, you're a dad. I mean, I'm sure yeah. things are gotta be firing in the back of your head. You're like a yeah. shit. I gotta, you gotta think about this differently. This is yeah. a lot of responsibility back at home. Yeah. That's crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. No, that makes sense. Um, Mike, I've taken a ton of your time, so I really appreciate you. This has been a blast. Yeah. I feel like we could talk all night. I had a, I had one last question. I, you're, you're a cool dude. You got a crazy awesome background and, and story. I wanted to ask you, and I ask a lot of people this at the end of the podcast, but I figured you'd have a really good one, is if you had to suggest one like book, podcast, source of knowledge, what would that be to my audience? The Bible. The Bible. Love it. You're the second person it's ever said that on the podcast it's it's a, it's a hard sell because it has a stigma around it um it's it's wild man the life lessons uh and i'm just now i grew up in a religious background and obviously 
you know, I, I kind of got away from that when I was in college and I was an athlete, um, being in the military, you know, when you're in stressful combat situations, as I was a contractor, I never got a chance to see combat active duty. Um, but like I said, I've been over overseas in combat zones for over a year and a half as a contractor. Yeah. Sometimes you have, sometimes you have moments where you realize that life is not in your hands and you realize that there's a bigger picture at play and it forces sure. you to kind of realize that. Um, but everything else, books, podcasts, I mean, there's obviously a lot of a wealth of knowledge out there. You know, hopefully somebody who watches what we're doing here picks up a nugget of wisdom and they can apply it to what they're doing. And if that happens, then this has been a success. Right. One person, one nugget of wisdom. This whole thing has been a success because it can drastically change their course of their life. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't I don't put a whole lot of stock into looking up to individuals. Okay. Um, because you know, as cool as a guy may seem on Instagram or, or you look at his accolades, you know, financial status, whatever it may be at the end of the day, he's just a man and he's, he's got just as many flaws and issues as, as you, if not more. Definitely. Um, but the Bible is really one thing that kind of transcends all that, you know? Yeah. Um, I've got, I've got a couple quotes here, you know, because this whole thing was supposed to be kind of, you know, geared towards finance, which we yeah. didn't really wholly talk a whole lot about, which is fine. But I've got some quotes um, that I have written down that I will leave in okay. lieu of the question that you just asked me. Love it. Okay. And hopefully um, kind of give people something to think about and something to marinate on. Like if they're listening to this in their car on their way to work or whatever, and this is the last thing they hear before they shut off and go to work or go to bed or get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee. And then I think this will be a well-placed thing. Definitely. Um, so in regards to finance and lessons learned throughout the Bible is uh, money can add meaning to your life, but it is not the meaning of life. That's Love the that. first thing that I've learned. Um, money is a means to an end, but if you make money the end, you're probably going to end up alone. Oh, okay. So yeah. money can help you be one. an end, a means to an end. Right. But if your end goal is just to like what all these rappers say is, you know, make money and fuck bitches, yep. you're going to end up alone. Yeah. Um, a lot, we use society, Western society, Americans in general, we use money to turn stuff into stories. Yeah. You know, we, we buy boats so that we can host friends so that we can go take trips so that we can do something fun together to talk about the story. Right. Well, oh, yeah, for sure. We don't, when, when those people are gone, you don't ever miss the stuff. You always miss the story. So think about like, you know, at a funeral, nobody at a funeral talks about someone's stuff. Yes. They talk about their legacy, their stories. So, um, you know, do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? Yeah. That's a yeah, good way no, to look at it, right? Yeah. Love uh, no one's going to talk about your stuff when you die. They're going to talk about, they're not going to talk about your truck or your boat or anything like that. They're going to talk about the stories that you helped create and the impact of the lives that you helped influence on others. Um, you know, what do you want people to celebrate about you when you die? Do you want them to line up? What do you want them to line up and thank you for at the end of your life? If you can't answer that question now, it's fine. You, you don't have to. But if you can't answer that question now, then your appetite will eat up all your resources. Ooh, um, yeah. Your appetite will dictate that answer for you. If you don't have a clear mindset and a trajectory of what you want your life to focus on, modern society and Instagram and social media 
will consume your resources for you. It's just a byproduct of what we're looking at. I like to push back on the American dream. I think the American dream is full of shit. Okay. Um, I think the American dream is rooted in ego and insecurities, accumulation, consumption, upgrades, being fashion forward and a house full of shit. Yeah. That's I don't true. think any, I don't think anybody purposefully chooses that. I think that happens that that becomes people's default mechanism because they don't know what else to do with their life. So they think, well, you know, what am I going to do? What's the American dream? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to meet a girl. We're going to get married. We're going to buy a house. I'm going to get a promotion. I'm going to get a bigger house. I'm going to get a bigger car. We're going to have kids. We're going to get an even bigger house. I'm going to raise my kids. I'm going to teach them how to do what I did. And I'm going to die. There's got to be something more to that. Um, I, I, when you answer the big question about like, what do you think, what do you want your life to be? What purpose do you want your life to be? I think your money will follow that purpose. I think if it's the other way around, you don't really know what you want to do with your life. Yeah. You're going to follow your money. And yeah, you're going to follow your money in where society wants you to follow it. There's a lot of ambush marketing tactics out there. It's, you know, it's following the Jones or the Jeffersons or whatever the, whatever the saying is where you're trying to keep up with everybody else with the fast cars. And I mean, dude, I lived it. I lived yeah. it when I was an athlete and I first started getting paid. Like I lived it. I wanted to be that guy with the flashy sports car. And I wanted to be the guy that goes to the bar and throws my credit card down and say, Hey, it's on me. Like that, that that's not the answer. Yeah, it's short lived right. and nobody gives a shit about that when you die. I was going to say, yeah, they, really, they really don't. <laughs> yeah. So the last yeah. quote I got, I got this, I got most of this stuff. There's a really cool dude that I like to listen to. Uh, his name's Andy Stanley. He's a pastor out in Georgia. He does a lot of online stuff. Okay. Uh, I came up, he's got a good quote. It says, if, if you live for yourself, you only have yourself to show for yourself along with some stuff that people are going to fight over when you're gone. Oh shit. So that's, that's a good kind one. Of an interesting way to look at finances. Is yeah, definitely. If you're, if you're, if you're wrapping your head around finances in order to just live for yourself, to go buy a bunch of shit, you're only going to have that shit to show for yourself when you die. And nobody's going to care about any of that. Right. So how do you wrap that up into a life lesson at the end of a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I've done a lot of cool shit. I've been a lot of places. I've seen some stuff and I made a ton of mistakes along the way. If I can look at anybody and give them advice on what to do and how to navigate life on not what to do, what I did to make their journey even better. I will be able to rest in peace when I'm done with this thing called life and yeah. be like, that was a success. Yeah, definitely, man. No, I love it. I think you did a great job of that in this episode. I mean, personally, I feel like we talked through a lot of different things and I think yeah. there's a lot of really, really good takeaways in here. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Thank man. you so much, man. Well, no, fun, I, mean, I, would, I would love to have you on again. I mean, we definitely can, you know, there's a lot of rabbit holes I can take us down and we can get yeah, into it. So I'm, I'm all about rabbit holes, man. Okay. Holes. Yeah. Let's I would do. love to have you on again. This was a lot of fun. Is there yeah. um, a good place or uh, obviously Instagram, if you want to throw that out, what is it the best place for people to follow you? Yeah. Or? Um, Instagram is pretty much the only thing that I'm actively participating in. It's Olympic dot operator. Um, I have a website that I just launched. It's just mikehazel.com. Oh, congrats. That's exciting. H-A-Z-L-E. Um, a lot of people will misspell I'll, that. I'll put that in the show notes. So if you guys want yeah, to check it out, it it'll there. be in there. And then, um, you can contact me. There's like uh, speaking resources if you want me to come do a keynote or anything like that. Um, online training, coaching, mindset training, all that kind of stuff. Love uh, it. Yeah, it's all there. And yeah, we'll the, get a lot of people to check that intent, out. With the intent of being 
if I can help, if I can help other people based on the life lessons that I've learned the hard way, yeah, I think, I think that's gonna, I think it's gonna make a difference. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate it. It's it was fun. a really fun podcast, man. We'll do it again. It. Yeah, let's definitely yeah. do it again. I'm definitely down. We'll do it. We'll set it up. All right, awesome. man. Awesome. Good talking cool. to you. You too, uh, Mike. Have send me great... all the links. Send me everything you got. I'll put it up on my uh, I'll put it up on my Insta, all that good stuff. And, okay. Yeah, you're the man. We'll, we'll definitely to, do that. We'll wrap it up. up. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome, man. Later, bro. Cool. Have a good one, buddy. I'll have, yeah. have a good evening. All right, man. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening, everybody, to that episode with Mike Hazel. Hope you guys enjoyed hearing him talk about his story and hope you guys walked away with some meaningful insights. To follow up, um, I will have links in the show notes to everything for Mike um, between his you know, Instagram, so you can follow along with his journey, to his website. Uh, you can find all of that in the show notes. And then as always, there are two more links. Uh, one is to Robinhood, and that is the link to... Get you to start with your investing journey. Uh, if you're someone who wants to start investing and doesn't really know how, I would suggest using Robinhood. They're not a sponsor of the podcast, but they are the platform that I use. It's free to sign up. There's no commissions. There's no fees. And um, you can start with as little as like a buck, I believe. So give it a shot and you get a free stock when you sign up at the link in the show notes. And then lastly, as always, there's the COVID stock market rebound tracker, which is basically a resource for all of you for free. Uh, that is just all the companies that I'm in. I'm either invested in looking to invest in, um, or are watching and keeping on my radar. So it's a great resource for all of you to use and it's free, like I mentioned. So thanks again for listening to another episode of simply finance with Shane white. Hope you enjoyed hearing Mike Hazel and thanks as always for listening. Um, the last thing I'll add is, you know, as always, if there's any ounce of you that loved this episode, the best thing you can do for the platform and for the growth of this podcast is to share it with your friends. Uh, can't thank you enough for those of you who do that already. And as always, if you could leave a review and add some stars uh, as a review, would love that and would appreciate that. So thank you again for listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. All right, everybody. Have a great evening.